Hello, guys, and welcome back for another episode of Health in Guelph. Today is a pretty cool episode. We have on Ashley Mariani, who is a registered social worker specializing in couples, perinatal, mental, emotional, and sexual health, while also fiercely advocating against sexual violence. Ashley has seen the implications of birth trauma impact on the mental, emotional, and sexual lives of couples and strives to help couples and individuals in prevention and resilience building. Ashley's academic background includes degree in sexuality, counseling, individual, and couple work. The lens that she works mostly and passionately about is rooted in the body's innate wisdom, the nervous system. Ashley works with her clients from a holistic framework that utilizes movement, nutrition, plant medicine, vagus nerve toning, and functional medicine. She is also known as the rogue therapist on Instagram and is a trailblazer about speaking about sometimes the most uncomfortable subjects, but also has such a compassion standpoint that makes you feel safe, loved, and supported. I am so excited to welcome Ashley Mariani. I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of Health in Guelph. Today, we have the beautiful Ashley Mariani here, who is a social worker, virtual clinic owner, breathwork coach, sound therapist, and Sherpa breath and cold facilitator. We have our special co-host here, um, Aaron Tusa. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this is going to be a great conversation talking about nervous system and sexual health and getting into all the nitty gritty of everything else that you, of who you work with and why you do what you do. So thank you so much, Ashley for being on. Thank you for having me. I listened to all of your episodes and you've had such amazing people on the show. So um, it's, it's so awesome to be a part of this group of beautiful humans. Oh man. I like, so how I know Ash is that we have, we had like coffee, how like at in Fergus at the vault, like what, five, (laughs) just five years ago, something like that. Something. Yeah. Yeah. And I just was so enthralled with like what you were doing. You were a great support at the time, just being a listener to even like what I was feeling and going through, just like getting like started when it came to the entrepreneurship. And Mm -hmm. now five years later, COVID and having like two pregnancies uh, for yourself, like it's what a difference, like what a world, what a whirlwind for you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And like we dabbled, both dabbled in the fitness world for a while too, right? Yes, you competed mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as myself. But mm-hmm. I like when I we just to sit and chat and just talk about like what we went through. <laughs> it's like feels like Crazy. a lifetime ago. Oh my god, so long ago. <laughs> oh, so let's get started. I want like let's give people a background of who you are and what you do and why you do it. Okay. Uh, background. I, um, have been a registered social worker for a while. I work not for profit realized real quick that, um, I don't like being told what to do or how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided to be, uh, a practice owner and own my own practice. In the meantime, I, um, did collect some training in uh, maternal mental health, perinatal mental health to, be more specific and, and niche down in the population I was working with. Um, but my foundation was already in sexuality, marriage and family studies. That's what I did my undergrad in. Um, and I expanded to be able to intersect those two topics where I was dealing with couples and sexuality, but also the, um, the piece around becoming new parents and how new parenthood impacts 
couples and the conflicts shift and the tension shifts and the relationship shifts and how can couples kind of get, get back on track and finding themselves, their intimacy, their sensuality and the connection again. Oh my goodness. I want to dive so much deep into what you just said. Cause like, um, I like as a new parent, it's amazing the new roller coaster you embark on, where like there's so many ups and then there's so many downs, and like sleep deprivation add to that, where you're just yeah. like going through the trudges and trying to figure out, especially as a first time, there's so many feelings. So yeah, many feelings. So many feelings. And and throwing in some birth trauma in there too, which um is more common than not, unfortunately, these days. Now we're now we're having a, a partner um, co-parent with us who probably doesn't know an awful lot about trauma, let alone birth trauma and um, expectations need to shift for everybody involved because I mean, as we're going to talk about, our nervous systems are greatly impacted by traumas and um, sometimes we don't know that our birth experiences or our postpartum experiences for that matter can, can be traumatic and, and impact how we see our partners and how our partners see us. Yeah. Oh my God. I know we're going to get into it, but like, there was something that like you brought up that I, I don't know, maybe this kind of leads into the conversation, but you're like, life always isn't about being calm. It's about matching your energy to the environment or the desired outcome. Women experience a rite of passage into a womanhood and motherhood, but men lack a rite of passage into manhood as they once did. As a result, we have many women feelings as though they are raising their husbands and partners. Mm-hmm. Like, I really like I brought that up because like it's kind of like when you're entering into like parenthood for the first time, like a lot of it is like you're, you're kind of you're feeling different things, sensations of and triggers like and then you're not even knowing that that's like what the where the feelings are coming from or why you feel like it's all of a sudden your hormones are just like you're getting and then you're blaming your hormones for the mm-hmm. most part and trying to see like as like trying to navigate is, should I be taking this personally? Why do I feel like my husband doesn't understand me or my partner doesn't understand me? Like why? I thought I was being really communicative. I thought like, and then you're like, and then on top of that, like you're having a little human that you are like trying to give your heart and soul to, to try to help them live and breathe and all that kind of stuff. So I just wanted to talk about that one a little bit, because like, I think that is that maybe this will help people understand like, a little bit more about raising their husbands and partners, which you should not ever be doing ever. <laughs> no, yeah. but like how, how, where do we get this responsibility to feel that way? Yeah, I was on, uh, I was on, yes. <laughs> I was on Pinterest the other day and, um, a t-shirt popped up that said, um, what did it say? I posted it to my stories, raising, raising my husband is exhausting. <laughs> And I thought, who, who is buying this? Who, who, who's buying this t-shirt that says this, this is humiliating. This is a huge cry for help from our society. If we actually think that like, this is funny enough to put on a t-shirt and to wear out in public, because that's, you're right. It's a joke, but it's not a funny joke. It's a very sad joke that we've gotten to this point in our culture where, um, in, in hetero relationships and, and I'm, and I'm speaking specifically to hetero relationships and hetero relationships, 
there's just this common topic in women's groups and mothers groups where, where these women are saying, Oh, you know, I just had a new, I'm a first time mom. I just had a new, I just had a baby, but I have two children. My husband's my other child. And my heart breaks for these people because that is not what this experience should be like ever. That's not what a partnership is. Um, and I think we are coming out of a generation that was raised by a generation of, again, everybody's traumatized. And I think the word trauma is used quite often and maybe inappropriate contexts as well, maybe used a little too often sometimes. Um, but we are coming out of some kind of generation where, uh, parenting looked an awful lot like coddling and there wasn't enough rite of passage for young men into manhood. And when we look at this concept of rite of passage for, for women, we, we enter into puberty and there's a very obvious transition for us. The menstruation, um, our, our cycles, even if our cycles are, are not regular, there's this rite of passage into womanhood. And then when we become mothers, if we choose to become mothers, if we're blessed to become mothers, we have this rite of passage into motherhood. But nothing like that is happening for men. You know, they might wake up with a morning erection and suddenly now they have wet dreams. That's pretty much as far as it goes. And then their rite of passage is kind of shoved between the pages of a playboy somewhere. Right. I mean, not pages because what teenage boy actually touches a magazine these days <laughs> in the tabs of your computer, though, we'll put yeah. it that way. Um, your, your Google search history, but nothing significant is happening. And when we look at traditional cultures where we're able to examine the significance of entering into manhood and what that means. And the, the confidence that this right of traditional rite of passage brings these young boys and their transition to manhood. And I think that lack of confidence in general is what a lot of these partners are lacking. Mm -hmm. And then they're just, they go from their being nurtured and cared for by their mothers to then thrown into a home and playing house with their partners where their partners are now responsible for them. And there's tons of positive reinforcement for not struggling and, and not, you know, creating that confidence that comes from hardships and struggles, um, does that make sense? Am I making yeah, sense? No, it okay. totally makes sense. I love that you, I love that you brought that up because that I think is part of the disconnect of understanding where like the communication of like, you know, their expectations of what you're wanting out of the husband. I feel like it starts getting lost in translation because there's a lot of expectations that you have for them, but they're not meeting them. And then there's becomes a lack of, um, respect in some way, resentment, anger, frustration. And again, there's some happiness happening in there, but most of the time when you're like day in day out with like a little being and you're trying to help that it's just like, you're a lot of energy output and not much coming in meeting you where you're at, but they don't know. Cause it's like, they're waiting to be probably told by you what they need to do and all that kind of stuff. So that becomes where you start like losing that I'm guessing this is where you're going to be bringing that magic into the nervous system, but like how to re regulate it. But like, 
again, it's the communication and understanding uh, with the partner. Um, that That's why I wanted to start there because like I see that a lot and you hear, yeah, the scene in that like in at a store, like a shirt like that. It is embarrassing and, and whatnot. But at the same time, it's like, how can we work with our spouses or partners better to like, you know, not have that type of shirt, wear that. Yeah, hundred yeah, totally. Uh, and it, it has to be, it has to be collaborative, right? Like, um, when we think about how our brains are designed and I talk about this a lot, a healthy brain does not want to, I mean, I'm just just be a pedophile. A healthy brain does not want to be a pedophile. And mm-hmm. so if our brains are categorizing our partners as children and people that we're caring for and having to nurture in a very, um, juvenile type way, then our brains are saying, okay, shove this one over here with the children. That is not somebody we are going to attempt to procreate with, or we want to feel desire towards or have any eros around. We are now categorizing them with the things that need us and are helpless. Um, and so our brains aren't going to be like, oh, that's sexy. Let's have sex with our, our partners now. So a lot of times men will come to therapy and their major complaint is that we have sex. We don't have sex anymore. We're not having any sex. I don't know why we became parents. You know, I, I had a lot of patience for the first six months and now I'm just, I have needs and I, I need these needs to be met. And then we kind of go back through to the conversations and we talk about, okay, what was the birth experience like? Okay. So there was birth trauma. Not only was there birth trauma, there was obstetric violence. The obstetric violence piece is very important because when we look at obstetric violence, we're looking at, um, the medical system and how it, and I'm not just talking about OBs. I'm talking about midwives too, and how it creates coercion, um, fear mongering, um, bullying, all of these really, dangerous ingredients that result in trauma. And oftentimes what I see is a frozen nervous system of the partner. The partner might've witnessed all of this going down. Oh, I, I knew she did not want an episiotomy. And when I saw the OB reach for the scalpel and perform the episiotomy, I was frozen because in that moment, I didn't think that I had the right to speak up but the damage had been done and the damage was done. And as she looked at me and made eye contact with me, I saw the pain behind her eyes. And for her in that moment, she looked at her partner and that subconscious was, why didn't you help me? You weren't, you weren't protecting me. And it might not even be a conscious understanding of you didn't protect me. It was, I'm suffering. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing pain and torture. And now that I see you looking at me and you know that this is happening, my nervous system is now associating you with the, the person who inflicted the pain or the system that inflicted the pain. And so now we're going to go home and we're going to pretend things are hunky dory, but really I'm going to be sleep deprived and maybe have trouble breastfeeding and be in more pain. And you are going to not know as my partner, what the next thing to do is because I'm not there to dictate to you as our relationship has been up until this point. Mm -hmm. 
So you're going to feel insecure and and incompetent, and that is going to start a spiral. Um, And now you're going to feel like the only thing that you can get reassurance from is sex and closeness and intimacy. And so you're going to beg for that closeness and intimacy, and I'm going to be repulsed by it because I have not healed my own traumas and my own wounds, especially around associating you with that moment of pain and suffering. Wow. That's super deep. And that totally, and I like at the time, like you, I totally get like, and then when I say this, it's not, I guess I get like where the person, like the, the, the person who gave birth, like is coming from, because like, she's just trying to survive and wants and wants her partner to know the pain that she's been feeling, but at the same time, doesn't probably know how to express it. And so that's the only way thing that she has control of Mm -hmm. and trying to hold on to, but whereas the partner would never know any of that. And no matter how you tell it, it's the damage like at that point has already been done. So how do you work through that? Yeah. And, and sometimes too, she, she doesn't know, right? Like that's the hard thing about obstetrical violence is that, um, people will come out of it and their, their intuition says like, God, I just feel like that wasn't right. I feel like something about that wasn't right. But everybody else in the world is saying, you should just be grateful. Your baby is healthy. You should just be grateful. You know, mommy is alive. Baby is alive. Who cares what else happened other than that? And that's completely dismissive of all of the background abuse that took place. So sometimes she can't even come out of it and say, this thing happened and you weren't there for me. She doesn't, she doesn't have that ability to put her finger on it. Mm. And like, it's interesting, right? Because I know that a lot of the time, like we co-regulate with like, with our partner's nervous systems. Right. So like mm-hmm. what happens in your opinion when that like distressed, or I know you say this a lot and we say it a lot too. And I just love this whole safety piece. Right. It's like when that like subconscious, like, drop happens from like um a nervous system standpoint a safety standpoint like what detrimental effects does it have on the relationship because i know i'm not like i'm i have a um a business baby but i'm not like a an official mom yet but i know that it really impacts our relationship because i have a um a business with my husband so it's like it's so hard to understand like what are you thinking what are you feeling what do you need and how does that impact like relationships like you know in future and whatnot like in your opinion where yeah what is your experience with that it impacts every aspect of the relationship, right? Because now you're taking the person that was supposed to be your person, your anchor, the safety, the grounding piece to the chaos. And now you're going, okay, well now I'm on a ship in the middle of a storm in the sea and I have no anchor and I have no idea where I'm going or if I'm going to make out, out of the, if I'm going to come out of this alive, really at the end of the day, like, I don't know where to orient myself. Um, And we see this in micro versions with our clients, right? When, when our clients don't trust us or when our, our clients don't trust in general and they need time to warm up, there's so much resistance. There's so much pushback. There's so much, um, there's so many barriers just to kind of protect themselves. And if we feel that on 
an intimate level with our clients. I, I mean, think about what it would be like for an actual intimate couple where you're sharing so much physical closeness and space together. And now suddenly you're terrified because you made this choice to have a family together. And now you're looking at this person and thinking, I feel like I don't even know who you are anymore. And so I'm just going to shut down or I'm going to look for conflict in every aspect of my life because I don't know how to else to ask. (laughs) I need to get your number girl. (laughs) I think I need to come for a session. Yeah. (laughs) No. Yeah. That is so relatable. Keep going. (laughs) No, no. and, And, um, and so, and that's what we see that, that, um, attachment. So what, however we have attached to our partner can either shift or kind of magnify. So if we're, if we have an avoidant attachment to our partners already, then we are going to see a huge pullback. So we're going to see more kind of like avoidance response. And maybe if we have a more anxious attachment, we are going to see, um, kind of like opportunities for perceived conflict, but what's really happening is an attempt to connect for, so a bid for connection. So if we don't know that, I mean, our kids do it all the time, right? Kids are like, I'm going to throw this book at my sibling's head because I haven't had my cup filled. I haven't, I don't have enough attention from my parents. So I'm just going to get any attention. And sometimes when we're in that primal state, even as adults, we just want to look for feedback from our partner that like, do you still get me? Are we still in this? Are do you want to fight for me or no? Mm-hmm. Oh man. That's so true. So cool. And like, when you say that, um, um, these like protective responses like are built and then they almost amplify when we feel threatened is essentially like what I hear type of thing. When you go, when, where does that start? Like, where does that start? And how do you notice the, um, the formative years of, you know, development influencing how we attach to our partners? And then I just wonder of like, you said something interesting there of like, um, it's like a cry when your your kid is like throwing the book or doing the tr- the tantrum. It's like welcome to our nervous systems. Like mm-hmm. that is our nerve. Like though, so it's like our 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 nervous systems are brilliant and they're just trying to like complete the cycle, like to get our need like to the needs met, right? So I just find it so fascinating. How do you work with that, and where do you notice a big, like how much of those formative years influence the relationships that we have now. And what do you notice about that? I just find this like so fascinating. Yeah. I think, I think that there's a, there's a myth that your attachment style that you have with your caregiver or your primary caregiver travels with you for your whole life. And that's not true. You have the ability to shift and change if you're willing. I mean, sometimes even people who aren't doing the active conscious work match up with a securely attached person just by chance. Um, and they are able to move through the healing of their nervous system in, in that way because their securely attached partner co-regulates them. So there's like, it's not uh, a death sentence by any means. Like if you feel your attachment style is, disorganized or anxious or avoidant, and it's not secure, then learning how to ground yourself and learning to identify 
the, the symptoms of that nervous system response is important. And you had talked about, Aaron, you had talked about uh, co-regulating and co-regulating is something that our primary caregivers do with us from day one, right? Hopefully anyways, you know, when the baby cries, we pick the baby up, we soothe the baby. Something happens in the toddler years where past generations have kind of preached this idea of spoiling a baby if you pick them up too much or giving a child, you know, too much attention is going to spoil them. Um, and what we know about attachment now is just, that's just incorrect. And when you create that foundation with this child of when you need me, I'm there for you. When I can calm my body and I can breathe through this moment, I'm teaching you to breathe through the moment. And I'm teaching you that I can share my calm with you. And in this circumstance, self-regulating equals calm. But like I said, being calm isn't always going to mean that you're regulated. Maybe sometimes in a certain situation, being calm is not actually appropriate for the situation and therefore you're not regulated. And I always like to use, you know, uh, an example of like a roller coaster. If somebody is on a roller coaster and they're super hyped and they're super excited and they're screaming and they're shaking and they're so ready. I would never look at that person and be like, mm, this is really inappropriate. You're really dysregulated right now. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, this makes total sense. Like your energy matches the situation. This is exactly how you're supposed to feel. So oftentimes I hear people talking about like, I just want to, I just want my partner to be calm. It's not realistic for your partner to be calm all the time. It makes sense that you would want a calm partner a lot of the time if you feel dysregulated. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so good. I have a question and it might go along, but I guess the thing is like, you know how we come into seasons about like where we're at and just for instance, like the five love languages, like, Mm -hmm. you know, would that be a nice way to share with somebody if you're trying to figure out regulation and meeting each other where you're at, like trying to showcase, like, this is the way like I work when it comes to acts of love, like whether that be words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, physical touch, some, you know, it might not be physical touch is like the season that you're in right now. But like, at the same time, you're trying to share with your partner that like, you know, that, this is what I need. Like, would that be a way to like regulate your nervous system where you're trying to communicate? Like, this is not working for me where I'm at. Like right now I'm feeling like out of touch with myself. I just want to like gain some energy back, but I want to, if like, how about we just go out for a dinner and like, you know, just hold hands or something. Would that be a way of regulating? I mean, I'm not the person to say no, because that probably could work for a lot of people. Right. A lot of people will say, um, a regulated nervous system is the additional love language. Like somebody that has a regulated nervous system um, is a love language in and of itself. But I can see, I can see somebody saying, I feel most loved and accepted and grounded and secure in our relationship when I'm receiving physical touch from you. And 
that does not mean that I want my genitals touched or that I would like to touch your genitals. It means that if the baby is sleeping, I might want to lay on you on the couch and have you rub my forehead because that's a very nurturing touch. Nice. Okay. Like that. Yeah. That massage or whatnot. Yes. Nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just some, it's like figuring out what what were you going to say, Aaron? I just think it's like really cool to figure out like different ways of language on here where people maybe understand the love languages and like, you're trying Mm -hmm. to figure out that act like that works best for yourself and where you're at. And it's like getting your needs met and understanding what your needs are. I guess the question that I have for you, girlfriend is like, how do you know, like, not how do you know, but like, I guess like when we've just been like so conditioned to believe that this is what I need to feel better. But how do you know when that is um like a protective strategy and it's not actually the true need, if that mm-hmm. makes sense? Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, how do, right? Like when do we understand these bigger systems that in, right? Like mom does it all. Mom communicates um, during pregnancy. She preps for her birth. She, you know, like she's the go-getter. But like, that's what we've been socialized into in a way. And I know you said something about ritual and routine. We used to, as humans, get together and regulate, not through like, can we talk right now? Can I have your eye contact 24-7? But through like singing and dancing and drumming and like, just like this act of regulating together as a community, right? And we don't do that anymore. Um, So it's just, there's like a disconnect from that. But then there's these bigger systems that come in and say, well, this is what you this is what happens. This is what a good household looks like. This is what a good partner is, or, you know, so how do you understand and how do you describe that to people, clients, patients of like, well, what you're feeling is actually not maybe the right thing for you. You know what I mean? Like, how do you start to, yeah, go on. (laughs) Um, I think first it's kind of like gauging someone's comfort with discomfort. Mm. So if, someone can't sit with other people's discomfort and they can't sit with their own discomfort. That's usually a sign that their coping mechanisms are probably not the healthiest for them. Right. Perfect. Um, if they, I mean, nobody likes discomfort. Our brains are designed to avoid discomfort and move towards pleasure. Right. So I don't think it's fair to be like, are you someone who like looks for discomfort, um, to be able to sit in it? No, nobody actually likes discomfort, but I think that there are people who put themselves in situations where they practice expanding that window of tolerance to be able to say, okay, this isn't something that actually causes me discomfort anymore. Let's now up the ante to see how far I can push myself, which is what we talk about in, um, intentional cold exposure too. like this idea that just like the thought of getting in cold water, you ask somebody who doesn't like cold water, nobody really likes cold water, but there are people that'd be like, Oh my God, F no, I am never getting in cold water. And right then and there, you know, like, Oh, this is someone who could really expand their window of tolerance right now. Yes. 
I like my hands yeah. like up, like where I'm like, I know I, know I don't like it, but I know it would do me so much better for sure. Yeah. My yeah. tolerance would yeah. be so much, better. my system would be so much more regulated, but it's, it's so, it's such a mental like block that I like most people, including myself have where I'm like, I'm uncomfortable. I feel like 90% of the day right now, going back to work and all that kind of stuff. Like I am so uncomfortable. And so I'm seeking comfort, but know that that's not what's going to help me. It's such a mind blockage. <laughs> Yes. And, and the other thing that we have to think about when we think about how we're coping is, are we making decisions rooted in fear or intuition? Because if we're making decisions rooted in fear, chances are, again, we're avoiding and instead of moving towards the thing that we need for the healing, right. That, that intuitive place of like, I'm just, I'm so terrified at facing this reality that I will avoid it at all costs because I'm just so terrified. Uh, and so I'm going to be a workaholic and never actually have to deal with the fact that I might've married the wrong person or had babies with the wrong person, or I don't actually enjoy the type of sex that I'm having with my partner. So I'm just going to stay at work all the time as a coping mechanism. And then we adopt that workaholic mentality of knowing that we can dive into work to avoid the discomfort of facing the uncomfortable emotions. Mm -hmm. That's a huge piece. And I think like huge piece hoping strategies piece of it is just like what our nervous systems tend to, to complete that cycle, even though the, the path has been well paved to keep us safe, right? It's like, I heard this analogy of like, oh, the path that you see with gravel, it still has grass on it, but the gravel has been, like the grass has been dampened down for so many times, people driving through that like road, mm-hmm. when ultimately that road is just the well-worn groove when maybe it might look, you might have another path in the distance, but there's grass, there's a whole bunch of stuff to overcome. And that takes courage mm-hmm. to have yes. to go down that path. But it's like, it's that discernment and that intuition. And that's kind of what I meant with my earlier question of like fear versus intuition. Like, how can you, how do you help people discern? Like, this is um, healthy for m- my relationship and my body and my nervous system versus this is a place of a well-worn groove, fear, protection. Like, how do you navigate that terrain? Yes. Yes. Uncertainty, right? Like not knowing what's going to happen if you go continue down that road, like where it's like you're trusting like that things are happening for you, not to you and not taking it so personally, not being reactive, volatile, like that I totally, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think you you just kind of, you answered it a little bit in saying, how do you react to the outcome? If I was to tell you, uh, okay, you have two options. One option is that you go, um, you take a job as a garbage sorter. And the other job is that you get to uh, paint smiley faces on rocks on the path and you get paid the same amount. I don't know why I just came up with those two examples, but that's what it is. (laughs) Whatever. I can envision it for sure. (laughs) I'm going garbage truck, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then it's like the discomfort of like, yeah. Okay. The majority of people are going to avoid the garbage job because suddenly they have this like somatic response to what they could find, the the sensory experience of it, the discomfort of it. 
ew, gross texture smells. That doesn't sound fun to me. So if I said, you know what? It doesn't matter what your choice is, your choice. I'm telling you that your choice is now the garbage job. You're going to have a visceral reaction to it. You're probably going to get angry. You're probably going to shut down. You're going to do something that demonstrates that your nervous system sees this as a threat. It's like the hero's journey. (laughs) basically well when you think about it because like they're gonna have to go like through all the trudges of like you know why why they've made these choices why like why the path that they've went down like the frustration fear of like becoming you know learning from them and like becoming the person that they've wanted to but they had to go through everything to understand the process a little bit but it might be the weird way to put it but it is becoming your own hero in the end because the outcome is you want that better relationship you want to have that connection piece back like to the way things used to be but you're growing and you've kind of went separate but you're trying to come back together and and identifying like actual threats to safety mm-hmm. versus perceived threats to safety yes is smelling shitty diaper well well I can smell <laughs> shitty diapers all day long so I mean that doesn't <laughs> I could do that job quite, quite because thoroughly. Because you regulated your nervous system to not live through that. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's that exposure, that titration. Exactly. Yes. Can you explain somatic response yes. and like reaction? Can you explain that a little bit for people? Well, the two of you have experience with somatic experiencing probably more than myself as what some people would call a talk therapist. So you tell me what somatic looks like in both of your professions. I love that. I love that way to turn it back, girlfriend. I love that. Yeah. Well, like you mentioned something there of like, you're going to get some sort of response in your, yeah, like, like some threat response in your body when you are challenged in some way Mm -hmm. but it's like the challenge that you're challenging well for my work at least a lot of the time we work with you know change (laughs) um habit change and a lot of the time I love to work with the food and the coping through food and whatnot I just find it so fascinating so like once I try and like meet someone where they're at And you can tell somatically there's a disconnect, like maybe you don't listen as much or maybe you over agree like I do all the time. I'm like, but that's not that's not a bad response. But sometimes people are just like, yes, yes, yes. But they're really not present. They're not there and they don't feel safe. So they get this visceral response or they just stop coming Mm -hmm. when things get hard altogether. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was like answering it, but I just. Anyways, I just find this such a big thing because I think like Amanda mentioned the her- the hero's journey, which I find very fascinating because I thought I thought my relationship with food and exercise was a hero's journey. But now that I'm starting to learn more about the nervous system and how important it is t- to build that into our health, mm-hmm. um, I'm finding it more to be a, a heroine's journey of like slowness and like discernment and like really that. understanding myself and like like, cause I have transference onto my own clients stuff, right? Like they're totally. probably not even thinking half this stuff. And I'm like, how are you doing? Is everything good? Right. So it's hard to separate like my nervous system response from their somatic response and like that intense just response, I guess, is what I would say. What would you say, Amanda? Somatic visceral well, response. What does that mean? 
I know for myself, because I'm definitely dealing with like trying like all this extra emotion right now, I need a release like so I'm going to the gym right now and like really and really breathing like I need to let out through breath like taking a deep breath in and regulate like so I've been like going more towards that way where I need that release. So going to the gym has been a huge one. Um, and also like doing my, um, what's it called? My cards, like just to like know that I'm on the right path. So I need a release just to make sure that I'm following it through, you know, the, like whatever the angels, the universe can like, let me know that I'm in the right direction. So I'm seeking those ways of somatic of uh, letting out that extra pent up energy that I'm having. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Ash. I think that just the fact that both of you have brought up movement in general as a way to um, move emotion through the body is kind of grasping at this idea of somatics where we're talking about where emotions live in our body. And so um, when we become triggered, especially by our partners, I know for me, um, I'm not I'm just entering the world into energetics and energetic healing. And, and now that I have my level two of sound healing, um, I was kind of forced into the world of, of chakras and Reiki through the sound healing journey. Um, and I know for me, when I'm in my fight or flight response, especially with my partner, my throat chakra just like starts to close. Yeah. Relatable. And, and I can hear it in, in, how my voice sounds. I don't necessarily stop talking altogether. Sometimes I stop talking altogether. Um, and that's like my freeze response. But if I am far enough in distance in conflict, when I'm in conflict with him, if he's standing in the living room and I'm standing in the kitchen, I can feel my neck reaching longer to try to get the words out. And my voice sounds like I'm going through puberty. It sounds very like squeaky and broken up. And I can hear myself and I think in like a split second moment, like, what are you doing? Why do you sound like this? But I know it's because there's so much blockage in my throat. There's so much that needs to be said that is so afraid of being spoken. And then for a very long time after a conflict, I feel a lot of tension in my upper trap area, in my neck area. Not so, not so much necessarily in my chest area, but definitely just kind of like hovering around this throat area. And so being able to tap back into the stress response cycle and move energy through my body is really important. So dance would be great and helpful. Shaking would be really helpful for me. I just really love, I am a horrific singer. I was going to say, you're going to say sing, aren't singing, you? singing, humming, um, and just talking to people like po- being on podcasts for me is actually very healing because I get to sit on this side of the screen where somebody is asking me about things. And now I get to talk about the things that I love and I love sitting with my clients and I love listening to my clients, but it gives me an opportunity to, um, lubricate that throat chakra. So would you go as far as saying that like boundary setting is a nervous system issue? Oh, hundred percent. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. Yep. 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 Interesting when it comes to relationships too, because it's like, how do you set the boundary 
while you're in a threatened state. And I know fawn is like a new kind of nervous system thing that comes up and, but like fawn is like a blended, as far as I understand, it's like a blended state of like, you're forced to be in a situation that you don't really want to be in, but you have to be there. So you start to acquiesce and please and whatnot, but you can't get out of that. Mm -hmm. So like, how do we give like the listeners like some power, (laughs) some of their own power and um, back and understand that like, in order to set boundaries that feel like maintain like quality relationships and whatnot, yes. it's a nervous system issue. Yeah. Like how would you, how would you explain that? Like, I just find that. I think part of the problem is that, um, in, in the, with the couples that I work with again, because I work with mostly hetero couples, we have this very, um, common cookie cutter, shameful little boy, critical mother dynamic in the couple dynamic itself. So we have a woman who's just gone through whatever she's gone through, um, lots of anxiety pent up, built up. So this micromanaging to soothe that anxiety steps in and the micromanaging then, um, demasculinates or emasculinates the male partner. So then he gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then he becomes this shameful little boy that maybe starts hiding pornography use, maybe starts closet drinking, maybe starts lying about being, you know, later at work, maybe even becomes, um, you know, in the freeze response around household, household tasks. Like, I don't know how you want something done, so I'm not going to do it. And he's in that free state. She's interpreting that as you're incompetent. You can't help me. Why did I choose you as a partner? And that becomes a threat to her nervous system. So now she's amping up with her nervous system responses because now she's like, you're not going to fuck with my baby. Sorry if F-bombs are not allowed. Um, Rock on. And my, and, and like, this is mine. Yes, it's our baby, but this is my baby. And I've just had a baby with you and you've bamboozled me because now you're not doing all the things that I need you to do. When what I'm trying to do is control how you do things to self-soothe me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's confusing. Yes. <laughs> That's so valid. <laughs> yes. So it's finding this balance between polarity, right? So um, I talk about with my clients, masculine, feminine energy. And when I talk about masculine, feminine energy, I don't talk about it in a man, female way. I just talk about it in the sense of polarity, sun, moon, energy, yin, yang energy. That's how I talk about it. And in every relationship, there has to be polarity. I don't care what sex, which gender you are in your relationship. There just has to be polarity for the relationship to work with most hetero relationships. Women want to be in their feminine, especially women who are choosing the motherhood journey in life Mm -hmm. or want to be in that motherhood journey in life. They feel pulled to that feminine energy, that nurturing energy. And by default, they then want a partner who is in his mature masculine energy. And that does not mean toxic masculinity. That means secure, grounded, directed, passionate, um, goal setting, planning, orienting, like that protective space So when she starts to feel like she has to micromanage, which is a masculine space to be in, 
-hmm. by default, he goes to the feminine energy and then she goes, I don't like that. That's, that's where I want to be. Well, now you need to man up. Let's go here. Whatever that looks like or whatever that means. Right. Which is a loaded term. Yeah. I'm triggered. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It is a loaded term, but in reality, what it means is that I am busy protecting our baby and I need you to protect this space. I contain here, you contain us. If I'm having a hard time emotionally, I need this to feel like a container to which my emotions can bounce off of the sideboards and still remain in this safe place. But if you, as my male partner, are not emotionally regulated and you're reacting to everything I'm saying, now I don't feel safe and I don't feel like my emotions are contained. And now I'm attempting to contain your emotions, which does not feel like alignment in the relationship. Right. Oh my it's gosh. Exhausting. It is exhausting. <laughs> it sounds exhausting. Yeah. I like wanted to add to that, like where Kevin and I have been yeah, we're going to have to start wrapping this up just for time and whatnot, because I don't want to, cause I'm loving it so much, but where Kevin, and I have come into place a little bit more for, to understand each other and their energy is like, you know, some, sometimes like, you know, he, I'll be at like a five and he'll be at like an eight. And so I'm like, like, or like a three and he's at an eight, depending on like where I am with my cycle, but like, you know, he'll know where I'm at to kind of meet me where I'm at. Like, so we'll, we've been saying things like that to ourselves out loud, because sometimes like we don't really know and know how to communicate like oh you know I've had a really shitty day today but if I if we know each other where we're at like we can kind of be like oh okay like let's just kind of like meet like keep that peace like keep that energy like pretty much more contained where we can like come to towards each other instead of feeling like oh it's like all about you know he he set me off or something like that there's more of like that communication does that make sense like where you kind of talk it like just to meet yourselves we're at we'll give ourselves a number and then we'll meet each other so that there's no reaction as much and taking it personally yes uh, a piece of homework that i give a lot of my clients is creating a thermometer and I think that this was like you helping us. Okay. <laughs> I think that's where it came from. <laughs> the, the thermometer was each person does their own thermometer. And on one side of the thermometer, you talk about what each number looks like. So if we're talking about more of like a polyvagal ladder idea, zero would kind of be like bad news bears. Like you are unresponsive. You are in complete shutdown. And 10 would look like complete, like homicidal rage essentially. So you're never going to know what each of those feel like. So you can kind of only guess that that's what, that that's what will happen. So you're only really working with, um, a few numbers in the thermometer on a regular basis when you're up and down and you're feeling a lot of things. So one side is going to be, what does this look like? If I were to walk into a room, how would I know you were at a three. How would I know you were at a six? What would I see? But also what would you feel? If you told me I feel really suffocated right now, I could go suffocated, suffocated, uh, suffocated is a two. Okay. Uh, suffocated is a two. Okay. So that means that you're really low on this, on this thermometer on the other side of the thermometer, we're looking at what can you or your partner do when you're in that state? So suffocated, okay. Suffocated means that, um, I just need to give space space looks like 
um, maybe like running the bath, but also making dinner and just kind of not expecting conversation for the rest of the evening, but offering, um, social engagement. So social engagement cues of safety. So smiles, head tilts, kind of just softness from the body language to say like, I'm, I'm here. I love you. I still care about you, but I'm giving you your space. I'm sending signals of safety to your nervous system. So being able to have a thermometer like that for each partner and putting it in a place where you can reference it regularly. And then when your kids are old enough, you can do one for them too. Hey buddy, when you say you are, um, uh, really angry, like, like grizzly bear angry, can you get any angrier than that? Or do you think that that's like top level angry? Well, I think I could probably get Hulk angry. Okay. So probably Hulk angry is around your eight and grizzly bear angry is probably around your seven and anything under the, that is probably a more regulated state. Hmm. So, so that's such a nice way to communicate, especially if you're having that community, having trouble being able to understand where things are coming from at that time, after you have like that little bit of time to yourself where you've gotten to sit and process, it's probably easier to like, okay, you know, yesterday, this is kind of what happened. This is now I've been able to process. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's such a cool thing of like, when I was growing up, it was like, oh, you're in the timeout in the corner if you were at the grizzly bear eight or whatever. Right. Versus like, Hey buddy, I we're in this together. Like, mm-hmm. tell me like where you're at, like, tell mm-hmm. me how you feel versus like shaming or making your partner feel guilty or being like, well, I don't have time for this right now because you were supposed to do that thing and you never got it done. So like, yes. whatever, right. Like that's such a nice yeah, I just find that such a great, like, well, that's like our belonging, like our sense of our social engagement, like we're getting that sense of belonging and we're like, like searing it into our systems versus like the timeout corner. Yes. And Isolation. Nobody yeah. wants to be isolated when they're struggling, not even our partners. Like if it's a moment of, I need to be alone because I'm overstimulated you still want confirmation that your partner is there. So it might not be, I'm going to come and cuddle you on the couch and get up in your space, but it might be a, you know, I'm going to squeeze your shoulder as I walk by just to kind of say like, I'm here and I'm Mm. thinking of you. Mm. That's so good. Oh my gosh, Ash. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time and being on the Health and Wealth podcast. This was so, I loved it. I loved all the conversation and such a different conversation to bringing some like neutrality to understanding like, you know, what each other's thinking, especially when it comes to relationships. So you're so, uh, you're such a wisdom, uh, a wisdom or wisdom or you're such a breath of fresh air and have so much wisdom. (laughs) And I just really, really appreciate you being on. Thank you. I wish we could talk more about like the actual logistics of sex, but maybe we can talk about that another. Oh, time. there'll be a there'll be a number two for sure. This is just to be continued for sure. Um, help. Uh, can you explain to our guests how they could find out more about you and where they could search for you? Yes. Uh, I unfortunately live on Instagram, which is probably dysregulating my nervous system constantly. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I know. I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, my clinic is at mindonline.ca on Instagram and my, um, uh, off the cuff, say what I want, do what I want. Instagram account is at the rogue dot therapist on Instagram. (laughs) 
and AKA my trailblazer. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to do something authentic. Um, and my website is www.mineonline.ca and I do virtual, um, sessions, but I'm also seeing clients at the womb in Guelph every other yes, Friday. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank they you. Yeah. definitely like such a, like it's, you're definitely a good piece to be a part of the womb. For oh, sure. thank you. It was, yeah. it wasn't a, a hard decision just based on the beautiful people who are already there and who have, um, started this, uh, space. And I'm super stoked to be just like working with my friends essentially. Ah, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Health in Guelph podcast. This show would simply not exist without you. If you know somebody in the community who would be a great candidate to be on this show, send them my way and email me at amanda at relevenrise.com. And what keeps us going and staying on the forefront is liking, commenting, and subscribing. Please share this podcast so we can keep this community connected. Thank you, Guelph, and stay strong.